Stories Jay and I look at on this episode of This Week in FCPA include the slap heard around the world and its impact on compliance. CCOs have to certify compliance. Good bribes. A coal industry exec charged with FCPA violations. A Marsh Max sub garners a declination with with disgorgement. ZTE whistleblower feared for his life. Keys around whistleblowing. The fine line between OFAC compliance and evasion, and the ISSB delivers sustainability guidelines. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 296 for the week ending, April Fool's Day, 2022, the slap scene round the world edition. Um, on this April Fool's Day, we are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, once again, on the slap scene around the world. So we have not Mr. Monitor with us today, but actually Mr. Hollywood Insider, Jay Rosen, uh, longtime Hollywood Insider with lots of Scooby on the inside scoop, which is going to be a very appropriate for our first topic, which of course is the slap seen around the world. For those who've just arrived back in the United States from their uh, trip to Mars and didn't have an internet connection, uh, Will Smith physically assaulted Chris Rock at the Oscars with a slap because Rock um, said something about his wife and her lack of hair, which is due to a medical condition. That led to Will Smith getting up from his seat slash table at the first row of the Oscars, walking on the stage, and with Chris Rock standing there with his hands behind his back, slapping him across the face. Chris Rock, to his credit, really didn't respond in a negative way. And then uh, if you were watching live, you <clears throat> the feed was lost due to technical difficulties, but there were numerous other um non-NBC cameras there, and they caught Will Smith in full flavor after he went back to his seat and uh, voraciously engaging in non-PG language, which will not be repeated on This Week in FCPA because we're a PG show, um, cussed out Chris Rock. Uh, It was ugly all the way around. Will Smith, of course, won the Oscar for Best Picture for his portrayal of uh, uh, Venus and Serena Williams' father, Richard Williams, in King Richard. Uh, He did not apologize to Chris Rock in his acceptance speech, tried to justify his actions, saying that, uh, basically, don't insult my wife. Um, The next day, he did finally uh, apologize in writing. Chris Rock has not responded uh, formally. He declined to file a police report. The uh, Jay... Nobody came out of this looking good, and I guess if there is someone who did, it's Chris Rock, but uh, I didn't see it. I read about it the next morning, and when I read it, I went, oh, man, they've stooped to Lowe's in the Oscars to stage a faux slap. Well, it wasn't a faux slap. So from your Mr. Insider position, um, what did you see, read, hear? How is this playing in the entertainment capital of the world? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, how it's playing in the Rosen capital of the world. I was watching with my youngest daughter, Millie, and as Chris Rock came out, I said, Millie said, I'm not going to predict anything, but I think it'll be very interesting to watch Chris Rock out there, and I wonder if he's going to say anything to piss anybody off because he has a reputation of you know, getting people, uh, getting a rise out of people. So no little did I, no longer than after I said that, Will Smith walked over and smacked Chris Rock, and Millie and I looked at each other and we're like, well, this is a crazy way to try to get the ratings up. And then we saw the sign and the thing. So it was all confusing. And then to watch him go down when he accepted the Academy Award, both Millie and I thought, oh, and Rebecca chimed in, my wife, that I guess the Academy knew he was going to win the Oscar, so they kept him around. So it just all seemed a little bit, you know, fishy. And then as we've gone further in the week with the media, 
Um, supposedly, Will Smith did apologize to Chris Rock, but Chris Rock says he hasn't heard from Will Smith. Last night, Chris Rock went on with the first of two shows in Boston at the Wilbur Theater. So uh, I think, as you said, Chris Rock has to get a lot of props because he managed uh, not to engage Will Smith in any type of fisticuffs. And uh, what I was trying to explain to my daughter was that, yeah, I mean, Chris Rock has a reputation of being a shock comic, comic at times. And I had to explain to her about the whole reference to Demi Moore and G.I. Jane. But when you're a public uh, person, personality, you're a sports star, you're in politics, you're in um, you know, the entertainment business, you have to kind of have a stiff back on these things. And people are going to make fun of you. And I didn't read the whole story, but earlier today I saw a headline saying that Chris Rock has a history uh, of making fun of Jada Pinkett Smith, and this goes back 15 to 20 years ago when she first came on the scene. So I don't think it was anything that, you know, was meant to be anything more than just a throwaway. You know, it's Ricky Gervais can be much worse than that when he skewered the people at the now defunct, uh, you know, Golden Globes. So I would say, you know, we're in a real interesting spot now. Um, the Academy has given him two weeks to respond. But uh, in your article, Tom, if you could talk about you looked at this as what happened if this happened on the shop floor or what happened if this happened at your company? What are the things that people out there need to consider if they're their own CCO? How would they react to this in their workplace? Jay, before I get there, could you maybe set up the scene with a little more of your insider Hollywood, what is the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences, and what is the Dolby Theater? Okay, so the Dolby Theater used to be known as the Kodak Theater when people used to use movie film, and now everything's shot digitally or to a limited amount of film. This was a facility that was specifically built to house the Academy Awards, and it's been, uh, I think it's been open for the last 15 years ago. So here in Hollywood, and even though I'm in Orange County, uh, Oscars is like, you know, the biggest holiday of the year for people who are in the business. Uh, if your film is nominated and you get invited to go, it's quite a big kudo for you. People get up, they get dressed, hopefully they get, you know, their tuxedos and their dresses and their makeup done. So that's the whole thing about the Oscar and going to the Dolby Theater and the Academy Award is uh, a closed shop, so we would say that if you win Academy Award, you get to be a member for a lifetime, and then you vote for your different guilds. So if you are in special effects, you get to vote for one of the five films that are nominated for Best Special Effects. Same thing for the Costumers Guild or the Makeup Guild. So you getting into the... Um, Academy is one of the crowning achievements that you can have in your uh, in, in your career. So to have the Academy come to you and tell you that they're going to revoke your membership, it could be a huge thing. So, um, you know, I think that kind of sets up those two things, Tom. The uh, Because I want to bring up the Academy in this, and they actually run the Oscar ceremony, the Academy's Oscars. So I wrote a blog post on this. And I uh, really wanted to draw out some compliance lessons. So what happens if this happened? What if this had been at the Dolby Theater and a concessionaire had slapped uh, someone who was in attendance? Well, I can tell you what would have happened. That employee would have been fired on the spot. They would have been physically hauled out of the building. Uh, they may have been prosecuted. None of that happened to Will Smith. Uh, sometime after... Uh, the events of Sunday night, the Academy said, well, they asked him to leave and he declined. I read reporting from Vanity Fair today and they said, well, maybe that really didn't happen after all. So it's unclear what the Academy did. So for the compliance professional, absolute first thing is, and this is an inviolable policy, no violence at the workplace, period. Uh, that doesn't mean guys can't, you know, be guys and do locker room stupid stuff to each other. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you walk up to someone whose hands behind their, are hand, behind their back and you slap them with force in the face. 
or, or any other part of their body. That is a termination offense. That cannot be allowed, number one. Number two, why wasn't Will Smith disciplined immediately, at least escorted from the building? Because here's the thing. Legally, now the academy is on notice that he has engaged in physical violence against another person there. Here, comedian Chris Rock. Well, what if he had stood up and slapped somebody else at the table? Well, the academy had actual knowledge he was prone to violence and they didn't do anything to stop him. That's serious legal liability. Uh, In states like Texas, something like that can escalate immediately to somebody going to their car and getting their gun and coming in and shooting somebody. Uh, This is serious stuff. So if there's physical violence, that person has to be terminated and they have to leave, uh, be physically escorted off the premises. This is not, oh, God is going to get you. This is, no, I've just slapped the bejesus out of you. It's completely different. So that's point one. Point two is you have to treat, uh, you have to engage in institutional justice as the CCO is mandated by the Department of Justice in the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Institutional justice includes treating people the same, literally from the boardroom to the shop floor. If somebody from the boardroom slaps somebody or somebody from the shop floor slaps somebody, or if an actor walks up on stage and slaps a comedian who said something about his wife, uh, they had to be treated the same. And um, that's why I drew the analogy of a concessionaire uh, at the Dolby Theater. If they'd done something, they could well have um, uh, uh, been terminated. And Will Smith wasn't even, uh, didn't leave. So now we've got this situation where Will Smith has apologized in writing. I've seen the apology, so I know it exists. I also believe Chris Rock that he, when he says Will Smith has not reached out to him. Um, and now the Academy is going to hold a hearing. Well, they want a response by mid-April from Will Smith. They don't need to wait till mid-April. Will Smith needs to respond now because, as you correctly note, he's a member for life, Jay. Now, there have been other expulsions from the Academy. Harvey, Harvey Weinstein obviously comes to mind um, as, uh, as one who was expelled. They didn't ask for his Oscars back because the Oscar was for the movie, not for conduct, at least not yet. And um, so uh, what's going to happen to Will Smith? Is it going to be, you know, FU, strong letter to follow? Uh, is it going to be wag their finger and say, don't you ever do that again? Is it going to be like the uh, the going to the sister's office when you went to Catholic high school? Put your hands out, lay them flat on the table, and the ruler comes out? Um, I don't know. Uh, the Academy uh, has a range of options, and I think uh, they they have to tread very carefully here, Jay. Um in the Vanity Fair article, they pointed out, well, there's no rule that governs violence at an academy event to guide them. Well, of course there's not that rule. Nobody thinks you need a rule for that. Oh, if you slap somebody on stage at the Academy Award ceremony before you win your Oscar, well, then we'll think about asking you to leave. Well, that, that's inane. You have general rules like no violence in the workplace. Uh, and that covers it. So I think the Academy uh, really needs to make a statement here. Uh, I think he should be kicked out. Uh, once again, the, on receiving the Oscar, that was for, <clears throat> for the picture and uh, not for his conduct going forward after the picture. So I'm not, I don't think he should be stripped of his Oscar. But there needs to be serious consequences for this because this kind of behavior, whether it's between college buddies whether it's a long-standing uh, feud between a comedian and an actor, whatever it may be, Chris Rock was literally standing there with his hands behind his back. Um, and I'm not sure I could have done that if somebody had bounded up on the stage uh, after I just said something that they obviously didn't like. So um, lots of lessons learned here, lots of things to think about. Uh, violence in the workplace is, is endemic in America 
And if the academy doesn't say or do something strongly here, Jay, I'm afraid it'll be uh, akin to uh, um, kind of a tacit acceptance. Yeah, I just had one other thought, Tom. What happens if he's uninsurable? How do you buy insurance for him on his next movie? Because he's he's somebody who's been prone to violence in the past, and he just reacted this way on the Academy Awards. So maybe he's going to be unemployable because of you know two seconds of his life that he's never going to get be able to take back. That's a great point. Uh, there, uh, what I would say, Jay, is there are consequences to actions, and you need to think through the consequences. Whether those consequences are something like that, whether those consequences are taking a drink, if you can't drink, whatever they may be, you uh, there's consequences and uh, you have to take those consequences. And that part of the movie industry perhaps is not well known as, as many other parts, but you're familiar with it and you understand what it means. And uh, as um, Wanda Sykes and I think Amy Poehler said, you know, yeah, well, what about the next guy uh, who in a comedy club that I'm doing a two-week stand at doesn't like something I say, and he stands up on stage and whacks me. Do I have to worry about that now? Uh, well, unless the Academy does something, you may have to. All right. Well, that was uh, an interesting uh, discussion, Tom. Let's uh, move on to the second story that we have this week. This comes to us from uh, Matt Kelly, the coolest man in compliance, and his own uh, blog on radical compliance. And uh, here's a neat concept that came up this week about having compliance officers certify their programs. This week in his column, Matt takes a look at the Justice Department's new idea to have chief compliance officers certify at the end of a deferred prosecution agreement that their company's compliance program is reasonably designed and effective. Now, Matt is a fan of the Justice Department and strong compliance programs, but can something like this really work in practice? Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Polite floated said idea while speaking at the compliance conference at a compliance conference last week. His remarks deserve a close read because even the suggestion of requiring compliance officers to certify the effectiveness of their program raises issues that could send more than a few executives breathing into a paper bag. So what exactly did Polite say? Let's quote straight from the speech. Chief compliance officers and their functions should have true independence, authority, and stature within the company. To further empower chief compliance officers for all of the corporate resolutions, including guilty pleas, deferred prosecution agreements, and non-prosecution agreements, Polite asked his team to consider requiring both the CEO and the CCO to certify at the end of the term of the agreement that the company's compliance program is reasonably designed, implemented to detect and prevent violations of the law, and is functioning effectively. Moreover, in the resolutions where an outside compliance monitor is not imposed, but the company is required to provide annual reports that, the, quote, we will consider requiring that the CEO and CCO will also have to certify that all compliance reports submitted during this term of the resolution are true, accurate, and complete, close quote. All right, well, let's put the compliance officers on the spot. One obvious question here is what happens when a compliance violation does come to light after you've certified the effectiveness of your program? Could the compliance officer face any legal jeopardy or liability for the program's failure? Because if so, compliance officers won't like this idea at all. But if not, then why bother with the certifications? Polite didn't address these questions in his remarks. The implicit point in the certification is that the signatory assumes some responsibility for the promise you're making, except compliance programs have a multitude of moving parts, and many of them well beyond the first-line compliance. The design of IT, data governance, the quality of personnel, first-line operating units, decisions about entering into high-risk markets, and so on. So if the Justice Department insists on compliance officers certifying the effectiveness of their programs, one of two outcomes could happen. First, the CCO will make those promises he or she might not be able to keep, or two, the CCO will gain much more influence over those forces we mentioned to live up to the responsibility. 
Obviously, the first outcome is untenable. Compliance officers worry all the time about liability for program failures beyond their control, and this scenario would directly play into those fears. That said, Matt's not so sure that the second outcome is much better. Haven't we said since time immemorial that business units own their risk? Because if you do gain much more influence over the organization, where where you can make final this is calls Don about Fox IT again. Thank you so much for, for listening to you this weekend FCPA. Disciplinary I hope you will check out my five part podcast series Taxman on the intersection of tax and compliance. You are it's an area that is rarely discussed in compliance, and it turns out there is quite a bit of intersection and overlap between tax and, and compliance. Into a so check it out, Taxman on the intersection of tax and compliance with Tracy Howell. Not that. On the Matt's Innovation and Compliance podcast series the on the Compliance Podcast Network. Because the I hope CEO you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. And if we Jay want can be reached at Jay Rosen at AffiliatedMonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Finally, if you've not so done so, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It would help our ratings and help and get the message out about the only weekly wrap-up of items in compliance this week in FCPA. The industry's primary regulator has just published an updated guidance on when it might hold compliance officers liable. And that guidance, FINRA stressed that bringing enforcement actions against compliance officers is pretty much the last thing it wants to do unless the CCO is directly involved in misconduct. The key point under FINRA rules is only executives in, quote, supervisory, unquote, roles should be held liable for compliance failures, and that does not include the chief compliance officer. Rather, FINRA assumes that the chief compliance officer acts in an advisory role, helping those supervisory executives, typically the CEO, president, or general manager, to, administ- to administer an effective compliance program. There's a lot of sense in that distinction between supervisory and advisory, and we would do well to apply it to other branches of regulatory enforcement. Matt's fear is that instead, police idea for compliance officer certification blurs those two roles. To be clear, Matt does believe police wants to support and work with compliance officers. He pulled a stint as a chief compliance officer at Entergy in the 2010s and has a sense of challenges they face. We just need more detail, like a formal policy statement posted to the Justice Department website on how these certifications would work in practice. Tom, can you tell us about the Cole executive who was indicted under the FCPA? Harry Casson wrote about this in the FCPA blog, came out today. A coal industry uh, executive was indicted for attempting to or bribing an Egyptian uh, government official uh, the Al, at the Al Nassar Company for Coke and Chemicals, a state-owned enterprise in Egypt. The bribery mechanism was relatively straightforward. Uh, consultancy fee paid to, uh, based upon a fraudulent or sham invoice and then a wire transfer the, um, interestingly, the individual uh, who was uh, indicted, Charles Hobson, uh, is still working in the coal industry, and his LinkedIn profile, according to Harry, says he's the president and chief executive officer at the Knoxville-based Capo Glow Mining, LLC. So um, if I were Capo Glow Mining right now, or Copper Glow Mining, I would be seriously uh, considering uh, having um, Mr. Hobson take a leave of absence. Uh, Jay, we have uh, another uh, article from the FCPA blog, but this time from Dick Casson. What does Dick have for us? Uh, Dick has a somber piece here looking at the war in the Ukraine and asks the question, Does when does a bribe become a, quote, good bribe, unquote? As of March 27th, the number of refugees fleeing Ukraine since the Russian invasion has reached a startling figure of 3.9 million people. Most of the refugees, mainly women and children, are now in the neighboring states of Poland, Romania, Moldova, Belarus, Slovakia, and Hungary. 
Without trivializing their plight, Dick asked if it matters how those refugees cross the border and how should we view their use of bribery if they needed to reach safety. That refugees sometimes resort to bribery at border crossings and elsewhere is common knowledge. But it's also true that bribery is now universally criminalized and condemned because of its devastating effects. So how do we reconcile the insidious plague of corruption, as the UN Convention Against Corruption describes it, with refugees resorting to bribery in order to protect their lives? The legal rights of refugees and obligations of countries toward them are embodied in the UN's 1951 Refugee Convention and 1967 Protocol, which have been adopted by more than 140 countries around the world. The 1951 convention defines a refugee as someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, or nationality. The cornerstone of the 1951 convention is the principle of non-refoulement contained in Article 33. According to this principle, a refugee should not be returned to a country where they face serious threats to their life or freedom. Individuals are not entitled to refugee status if they've committed a crime against peace, a war crime, or a crime against humanity. To Dick's knowledge, the UN High Commission for Refugees, the agency that administrates the 1951 Convention, hasn't spoken publicly about refugees using bribery, probably because any seeming endorsement of corruption violates UN principles. However, in a 2015 white paper offered by two, authored by two members of the OECD directorate, they talked about how the smuggling of refugees and corruption to leave their home country or enter to a destination country, refugees often need to resort to extra-legal measures. This term of art the authors had in mind include bribery. A sidebar in the paper with the heading Opportunities for Bribery lists as potential bribe recipients border police, immigration officers, transportation, and housing professionals. Although the OECD paper raised the topic, scholars have been reluctant to discuss the refugees' bribery any further. One scholar who nevertheless stuck out his neck is Philip Nichols, professor of legal studies and business at my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. He wrote in a 2015 Law Review article about what he calls good bribes. Professor Nichols first stipulates that most attempts to justify the payment of a bribe have no merit. But then he considers the case of Oskar Schindler, the German national and member of the Nazi party who paid world during World War II to save the lives of at least a thousand of his Jewish workers at factories in Poland. Based on Schindler's case, along with at least one bribe that was paid by the Underground Railroad, which rescued people from the horrors of slavery, in the United States, and seemingly widespread bribery in North Korea to escape the impressive regime, Nichols concludes that some bribes can be justified. He says, such bribes do not represent a new checklist for evaluation bribery, nor do they represent a new trope of thinking. Rather, unique circumstances raise such bribes above the rules against and concerns about paying bribes. Surely one of history's unique circumstances is war that engulfs innocent civilians and turns them into unfortunate refugees. Just as it would have been ludicrous to have demanded that Schindler be put on trial for bribery for what he did during World War II, Nichols says so it would be ludicrous to penalize Ukrainian refugees for paying bribes in their former home country or their new domicile to get their families to safety and freedom. The bribes, like Oscar Lynn Schindler's, fall into the tiny but real category of good bribes. Tom, tell us about controls and why they're so key to compliance. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Jay, the um, article comes to us from CCI and by Chris Audette. And Chris uh, wrote about some thoughts by Gardner folks 
about internal controls and training. And it's a little odd, I think, Jay, because the title of the article is basically we need more controls and controls are the key to compliance. And I hardly agree with that. But the article goes on to really take several shots at compliance training. And um, the problem I have, Jay, is that compliance training is clearly part of a best practices compliance program. It's part of the seven elements from the sentencing guideline. It's part of a what used to be the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, now just the hallmarks of an effective compliance program. So if you cut back your training and put in controls and you get it in FCPA enforcement action, the first thing the DOJ is going to say is, where's your training? And why aren't you giving targeted training? And why aren't you giving effective training? So uh, it's a little discongruous, I think, to say controls can take over training. At the end of the article, literally in the last paragraph, I think they re- uh, rectified themselves because they said the best combination is training and controls. And that's certainly true. But training's a critical element of a compliance program, and controls are a critical element. In fact, I believe they're the backbone of a compliance program. So anything that would really help a company understand they need more controls, I'm for. But to say it, it's going to take the place of your training, I, I'm not sure that the DOJ believes that. I'm not sure I believe that. And I'm not sure that's the best practice uh, of a compliance program going forward. So um, we had a declination with disgorgement this week. Jay, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. This comes to us from two sources. Uh, third article today from the FCP, FCPA blog, this one by Harry Casson, and then also uh, from one of the good friends of the podcast, Dylan Toker, over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. And here's the story. Jardine Lloyd Thompson Group Holdings Limited, which is a subsidiary and owned by Marsh McLennan Companies, was notified by the Department of Justice that it would decline prosecution and credit, I guess that's give money back, $29 million in disgorgement the company paid to the U.S. Serious Fraud Office, U.K. rather. The DOJ said pursuant to its corporate enforcement policy in the Justice Manual and the principles of federal prosecution of business organizations that it would decline to prosecute the U.K.-based insurance company for violations of the FCPA. The DOJ's declination letter was dated March 18th of this year and said the agency would credit 100% of the $29 million in disgorgement the company paid to the SFO. The DOJ found bribery in Ecuador totaling about $3.1 million, but declined to bring an FCPA enforcement action, citing the company's self-disclosure, proactive cooperation, and internal remediation. Beginning in 2014 and continuing through 2016, an employee and agents of Jardine Lloyd Thompson paid about $10.8 million in, to, in, in bribes to a Florida-based intermediary, knowing that about $3.1 million would be paid to bribe Ecuadorian government officials. The bribes helped Jan- Jardine Lloyd Thompson obtain and retain contracts with the Ecuadorian state charity company Segura Sucre. According to the DOJ, around 1.2 million of the bribes were laundered through bank accounts in the U.S. This is the first declination letter the DOJ has published since the World Acceptance Corporation's declination with the disgorgement two years ago in August of 2020. The company paid the SEC 21.7 million in the resolution, and the DOJ declined to prosecute. The DOJ issued its first declination with disgorgement in 2016 under the pilot program to encourage companies to self-report. Under a program launched in 2016, companies that report bribes pay to foreign officials and cooperate with prosecutors and take steps to prevent future infractions can presume the Department of Justice will decline to prosecute these matters. The program was meant to incentivize companies to proactively disclose bribery violations by offering them leniency if they do so. But the program had a few had had few recipients in recent years. The letter to Jardine Lloyd Thompson is the first such declination awarded to the comp- to a company in more than 18 months. 
The decision not to prosecute was based on a range of factors, including the company's decision to report violations, prosecutors said. The department also credited the company for terminating the executive involved and taking steps to enhance its anti-corruption training and compliance program. As part of Jardine Lloyd Thompson's declination with the DOJ, the company agreed to continue cooperating with ongoing investigations. Tom, here's a name from the past. What's happening at the ZTE whistleblowers? Jay, uh, another article from CCI. Uh, We usually don't have two, but we do today. And the reason we have two is Ashley Lavin uh, was the general counsel at ZTE America who uncovered the massive fraud engaged in by ZTE to illegally sell products into Iran when they were sanctioned from receiving U.S. products. He actually became a whistleblower. He sat down with the FBI over several meetings and gave them enough information that they were able to create a 32-page affidavit for uh, to obtain a search warrant to search ZTE's premises in Dallas. Unfortunately for Ashley and his wife Donna, uh, somehow that affidavit was leaked and he was outed as the whistleblower. Uh, and he and his wife literally had to flee their house the night that that story was published uh, for fear of their lives. The article in in CCI is part of his, or an excerpt from his book, yet to be released, entitled Standing Up to China, How a Whistleblower Risks Everything for His Country. So um, it's going to be um, uh, a great book. I hope the compliance community embraces this to read about it And uh, much like the Airbus whistleblower uh, who had to literally uh, flee his home in Saudi Arabia based upon a phone call that said, get out of the house now, Um, this whistleblower had to leave his house because he was in fear of his life that uh, someone associated with ZTE would off him. So um, it really, it's going to be a great story for all of us to read. And now we understand or know a little bit more about ZTE. Uh, We didn't cite to it in the show notes, Jay, but uh, ZTE last week, uh, because it didn't happen this week, and we only report on this week in This Week in FCPA, not last week in This Week in FCPA. And last week, ZTE got out of the first monitorship uh, from these violations that uh, Ashley Laban reported. There was a $890 million fine, a monitorship reported, Uh, Interestingly, Jay, the court order releasing it from its first monitorship, and I'll get to the second one in a moment, um, basically found that ZTE had likely engaged in criminal activities since or during the pendency of the first monitorship and literally invited the Department of Justice to investigate. ZTE also had a second fine and penalty uh, Jay, a billion-dollar fine and a monitor imposed by the Department of Commerce as opposed to the court for a period of 10 years. And it's not clear why the district court allowed ZTE out of its monitorship, but it did, uh, and it basically turned over everything to the uh, Commerce Department's monitor. Um, clearly, ZTE was a company that was not doing business legally in the United States and needed to be severe, severely spanked, and they were. Uh, but no one should be in fear of their lives when they uh, uh, release informa- information about the illegal uh, actions of their company. So I look forward to reading uh, Ashley's book, and I urge you uh, to read the excerpt from um, C- or on CCI. Uh, Jay, next up, uh, we have a little bit more on whistleblowers. What did uh, Jan Stampers uh, tell us in Risk and Compliance Matters? Well, as many of our listeners know, whistleblowing is the work in, in the workplace is a process where an employee, the whistleblower, reports to an authorized person a certain type of misconduct. Whistleblowing examples can include criminal activity such as the theft or an ethical or unjust behavior in the workplace, including being racist, sexist, or homophobic. In this work in the workplace, procedures for handling whistleblowing and whistleblowers can vary from company to company. However, with the new EU Whistleblower Protection Directive, when, when this comes into play, the rules have become more defined and a greater protection across U.S. countries, EU countries for whistleblowers has been enforced. 
On December 17th of last year, EU member states implemented a new whistleblower protection directive. The purpose of the directive is to provide greater protection across the EU countries. EU companies and public bodies with 250 or more employees must execute the defined reporting system. However, if an organization doesn't match the criteria, it may still have to comply. Although, it's a, although it is a scheme that must be applied to all employees, the directive doesn't just apply to employees alone. Self-employed contractors, workers, volunteers, non-executive directors, shareholders, suppliers, and contractors are also covered. So what are the key points? You have to provide safe and accessible reporting channels. You need to ensure workers know when and where to report. Protect the confidentiality of whistleblowers and those involved. I guess that did not happen in the last story. Promptly acknowledge receipt of reports providing feedback within seven days. Provide an update on the investigation within three months. Protect whistleblowers from dismissal, demotion, or other forms of workplace retaliation. And the last point, keeping a record of reports for no longer than necessary to comply with GDPR, because it wouldn't be the EU if we weren't talking about GDPR. The article closes with five whistleblowing tips that board members need to know to measure the success and challenges of their business. First, if employees are not raising concern, that is not good news. Just because reports aren't being made doesn't mean misconduct isn't happening. In fact, 85% of Europeans believe that workers very rarely or rarely report their concerns. Next, Receiving more whistleblower reports is generally a good thing. An organization's board members need to be educated so they know that receiving a high number of reports is typically good for your business. Three, employees must trust the whistleblower program. Board members need to understand that employees will only raise concerns if they trust the whistleblowing program. Fourth, the more reporting communication channels you provide, the more reports will be received. That seems to make pretty much sense on the surface. And finally, an effective whistleblowing process can bring sufficient benefits to the wider compliance program. Companies that implement a successful whistleblower procedure can gain additional insights into the employee's mindset. So what's next? Many globally common factors, such as the rise in awareness surrounding the ethical treatment of people, mental health, COVID-19, and workforce human rights, are bringing the topic of whistleblowing to the forefront in media and for businesses. With the EU Whistleblower Protection Directive now firmly in place, it's more important than ever for companies to put into action the new rules while encouraging employees to do what's right. Tom, tell us about the fine line between compliance and evasion of OFAC sanctions. Uh, This comes to us from our good friend Mike Volkoff at Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, Matt Stankowitz, a... um, uh, associate with uh, the Volkoff Law Group. And uh, he reminds us, Jay, that uh, you can't outsource your compliance program to third parties and then claim no responsibility. Certainly, you can have outsource part of your program, but what you can't do is what many have tried to do, which is hire third parties to do the work on trade and then claim, well, it's not me, it's the third parties. And um, my, Matt and Mike remind us of this, uh, and it's particularly important, Jay, in light of the uh, tremendous uptick in sanctions around Russia and the Russia invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it should be on the forefront of everyone's mind. And if we move to another level of sanctions, which would be secondary sanctions of any, if you can't do business with a company that does business with a sanctioned company, that's going to provide an entirely new level of scrutiny, um, or uh, I heard a great phrase from our colleague Jonathan Armstrong in a podcast he and I did yesterday. He called it double due diligence. You'll have to do diligence on uh, your direct third party or your counterparty, and then you'll have to do due diligence on the people who are their direct counterparties. And if we have to get to that, Jay, it's going to cause our friend Candace Tal to have a whole lot more work. So... Um, But the bottom line is don't outsource things you can't outsource. You're responsible. You're responsible for trade compliance. You're responsible for anti-corruption compliance. You're responsible for money laundering compliance. So uh, don't don't try to outsource. And once again, great article. 
Jay, our last article is about the delivery of proposed sustainability guidelines from um, the ISSB. What did you see in there that uh, might have uh, caught your eye? Sure. So there's there's a lot of acronyms here. I'm going to fight my way through this one. But as Tom noted, the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, which was established at the COP26 to develop a comprehensive global baseline of sustainability disclosures for capital markets, has launched a consultation on its first two proposed standards. The first sets out general sustainability-related disclosure requirements, and the second specifies climate-related disclosures. These proposals, which are exposure drafts, build upon the recommendations of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures and incorporate industry-wide, industry-based disclosure requirements. When the ISSB issues the final requirements, they will form a comprehensive global baseline of sustainability disclosures designed to meet the information needs of investors and who want to assess enterprises' values. The ISSB is seeking feedback on the proposal over a 120-day consultation period. The proposals have been developed in response to requests from G20 leaders, the International Organization of Security Commissions, and others who are looking for enhanced information from companies on their sustainability risk. Later this year, the ISSB will consult on its standard-setting priorities. The consultation will include feedback on the sustainability-related information needs uh, when assessing enterprise value on further development of industry requirements. The ISSB's proposal build on the work of the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, the International Accounting Standards Board, and the Value Reporting Foundation, which houses integrated reporting and SASB standards. Developments of the IFRS Sustainability Disclosure Standard follows an inclusive and transparent due diligence process, rather due process, consistent with the used with those used to develop IFRS accounting standards and as required by the IFRS Foundation's constitution. The IFRS sustainability disclosure standards are intended to provide a global baseline and to be comparable or rather compatible with the jurisdiction-specific requirements, including those intended to meet broader stakeholder and shareholder needs. Thus, in addition to commenting on the proposals, stakeholders are encouraged to respond to other relevant public consultations being undertaken by jurisdictions on sustainability reporting. Tom, that's the end of our stories for this week. Why don't you give us a preview on the cornucopia of podcasts we have? So we had a great week of podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. What's the intersection of sports and ethics? Well, uh, Jason Meyer, our friend, uh, explores and I explored on a jointly released podcast that we did honoring ethics madness. Jason does an annual sports and ethics show that he used, used a variety of uh, tech on over the years, live tweeting, live blogging. Uh, and this year we did a podcast. And we took up several different uh, sports topics, uh, F1, NCAA, women's and men's baseball, and uh, the Olympics. So uh, great stuff on ethics madness, cross-posted on greetings and felicitations on the Compliance Podcast Network and Jason's site, Eight Mindsets, which he co-hosts with Nicole Rose. Uh, I had a two-part podcast series on Allie McDevitt's great podcast. Uh, case study in Compliance Week on a ransomware attack, and uh, I would urge you to check out Allie's complete um, series. I've linked to it in the show notes of the podcast, parts one and two on greetings and felicitations. You should uh, hopefully will join us at Compliance Week 2020. I'm speaking on a couple of panels, and uh, there's a discount code for listeners uh, to this podcast. The discount code is FOX200, and it gets you $200 off. I've linked to the podcast, um, excuse me, to the uh, registration site uh, with the uh, discount code in the show notes. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the MS150. It's a bike ride that happens every year from Houston this year to College Station. 
Texas, and it raises funds for multiple the fight against uh, multiple sclerosis. My friend Alan Peterson joined me on the Hill Country podcast. Alan's ridden for 12 years. Ten of those years he's ridden with his daughter, and uh, he's riding with her again this year. So I link to that, and I would ask you to donate uh, to Alan and the MS, uh, and I've linked to that. And then finally on uh, ESG compliance, I had Christy Grant Hart on, Jay, uh, this week, and Christy explained why she believes that compliance should lead the um, overall ESG effort. And it was a great podcast. As you know, Christy's a big fan, big friend of this podcast as well. And Jay, if I can mention one other thing, on Monday, I premiere a new podcast, All Things Investigations, which is a podcast I'm hosting, but the guests are Hughes Hubbard lawyers in their anti-corruption and investigation section. It's going to be a great series. I interview some great lawyers, and we have some uh, interesting topics that we explore that I don't think get enough press. So uh, welcome Hughes Hubbard to the Compliance Podcast Network and All Things Investigation. First show goes up Monday, Mike Hunnicky. Uh, talks about the U.S. versus Coburn discovery dispute and the waiver by uh, Cognizant Technologies Council of the attorney-client privilege when they turned over documents and made reports to the Department of Justice. So really significant issue for the um, white-collar defense bar, for corporations, for in-house counsel uh, who are involved or embroiled in an FCPA investigation. So what do you have for us, Jay? I have the honor of taking us home. So if you'd like to get in touch with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, you can reach him at tfoxlaw.com. And I am always your humble servant, Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. And you can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 296 for the week ending on April Fool's Day. This has been the Slap Scene Round the World edition. Tom and I would like to thank you for spending some of your week with us. And we look forward to seeing you next week when we take a look at This Week and FCPA. Talk to you soon. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to This Week in FCPA. I hope you will check out my five-part podcast series, Taxman, on the intersection of tax and compliance. It's an area that is rarely discussed in compliance, and it turns out there's quite a bit of intersection and overlap between tax and compliance. So check it out, Taxman, on the intersection of tax and compliance with Tracy Howell on the Innovation and Compliance podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Jay can be reached at J. Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Finally, if you've not done so, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It would help our ratings and help get the message out about the only weekly wrap-up of items in compliance this week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.